parental abdication of responsibility, handing that over to the government as if the government was a parent of the child. We have no future as a society if we continue down that road. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to another episode of The Cauldron Pool Show. This has been a long waiting event and I'm really excited to have one of our main contributors, one of the most read contributors of Cauldron Pool join me today. He is a homeschool father, he's a freelance writer and as I mentioned, Cauldron Pool's star and that is Rod Lampard. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Now, there are lots of things I want to talk to you about, but I think a lot of people would appreciate getting to know a little bit about who Rod Lampard is. As I mentioned, you're probably one of our biggest contributors. You write so many articles every single week about a whole variety of things, and people want to know what led you to this point and who who are you and who were you and why you sort of got involved in this space. I, I come from a pretty rough background, dysfunctional family, fatherlessness, the whole shebang. Um and truth has been a really big thing in my life. So uh, fighting for truth, getting past family lies and deceits and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, truth has been a big, big part of my process of healing and, and moving through uh, victim, victimhood to being, uh, I guess, a victor in Christ and um, finding Christ in a gutter. I literally found Christ in a gutter. And went from there, and he just, you know, just raised me up since then. And I mean, it hasn't been easy. It's been struggles, and you know, sanctification takes process, regeneration takes process. It's, it takes it, it takes a few years to move through a lot of that healing and and a lot of the pain to get it out. Um, and I went from there to I sort of ended up in in Kurong and managed the bookstore in the, our local area for twelve years, and uh, which was a surprise for a lot of people who knew me as a teenager. They, um, some of them couldn't fathom that, you know, there's a, that I was a Christian, that I was working in a bookstore, I was that bad. So, you know, it was life did, did turn around pretty radically for me um, because of the cross and um, coming to Christ. And, you know, that, I can only put that down to his work in my life. It's nothing that I did in particular. Um, so, yeah, I went from there to got married and had five kids and we, um, we went through some pretty severe pregnancy um, issues with uh, morning sickness called hyperemesis. It's uh, a situation where it's, it's largely misunderstood, I think. I have written about it um, for Dads for Kids and trying to help guys and, and women especially who, who are in that situation have family who don't understand what it's like um, for these you know, men and women, to, to husbands and wives, to go through the hyperemesis uh, situation where you know, there's just constant vomiting, there's hospitalisation, yeah, it's pretty crazy stuff. And um, we, we encountered some rather heavy ignorance about it. Uh, my wife was criticised. She was, you know, called uh, accused of faking it and all sorts of stuff. So it really didn't help uh, us in any, any respect with that. But we learned a lot about it. And that, that, that sort of ignorance from other people forced us to learn more and, and, uh, and uh, find out ways that we can counter that. But, yeah, five kids later, we we're homeschooling. I have a degree in theology and ministry um, through Table. And um, four years ago, I, I contacted Ben and just uh, on the off chance that he might like some of the articles I've been writing on my blog since 2013. And um, he said, oh, yeah, give it a go. And uh, we sort of went from there. It's got a history now. But, yeah, and and um, I've been able to use everything that I learned from um, what I focused on my major in, in um yeah, table was church history and my mind it was um, Christian leadership so a lot of that involved political theology and I kind of went in that direction I was sort of kind of getting into that at Kurong anyway there's you know I would often push Keith Green over Joel Osteen stuff like that um, just to encourage people to get back to the the roots of Christianity I did I did have some hiccups I mean I was part of the emerging church uh, sort of movement I was really into that uh, Rob Bell you know, the whole, the whole thing. But I did find as I was moving through that, God sort of had me in his arms, I guess, and, and disciplined me to some degree with that. And I always, always had a heart for Spurgeon and Spurgeon's always been in the background, um, grounded me in many ways, especially because we come from Pentecostal uh, circles and, and uh, I've always questioned the excess and that's never, you know, that's meant I've, I've never made friends because of that. Um, but, you know, just you get back to, to what the scripture says about certain things. And if you've got a, a, a pastor who is um, 
giving over the service, the, you know, stopping the sermon and giving over the service to the Holy Spirit. Um, you kind of, I don't know, question that. You're censoring the, the word of God, and I think that's a that's an issue. So, again, there's truth and falsehood in that. And I think well, what are we really getting to there? So we come back to that that quest for truth and the battle for it. I mean, I remember I was in a leadership meeting with one of the churches we were um, so heavily involved in, and I challenged the the what I would call performances at the front of the church and um, the, just the insincerity of it. It seemed to be the same people every week having these special um, touches from the Holy Spirit. And it just, it really kind of made me go, hang on, there's something not right about this. And anyway, we were slowly moved out of leadership because of that. But it was a blessing in disguise. You know, John got pregnant, my wife, and that's when uh, we started having those, that journey through hyperemesis and things like that. And yeah, but um, I came to writing and and that, that whole quest for truth is part of why I work um, as hard as I can to, help Ben out and get Cauldron Pool, um, I guess, take it to the next level and just to be the best that we can at what we do. World-class, I suppose, is what we're, we're sort of aiming for. And you're doing a great job with the podcast. I mean, that is that is excellent. I mean, <laughs> that is world-class. What you're doing is world-class. It's about class. you today, Rod. It's about I know, you. <laughs> I know, but you deserve credit Thank too, you. right? So, um, yeah. So, yeah, my, my, my passion for fathering comes from, uh, that fatherlessness and that, that abuse that I received as a child. And um, now I've got an opportunity to help others, I suppose. I mean, even though I feel to some degree inadequate because of where I come from, I was raised in housing commission, welfare dependency, both parents were on it. Um, part of that informs my distaste for labor um, and has done for a long time uh, because of how they encourage that dependency. And um, I suppose that that also informs my um, relationship with God to some degree too, because we, we want to be dependent on him, not government. I mean, that's the, was the quest for two years. We were saying God over government. And that, that didn't just, that wasn't something sort of slogan that I, I sort of stood by. That's something I deeply believe because of what I've come from and to where I hope, you know, the Lord is leading us in many respects. And um, Colgen pulls one way that I can uh, help others. Uh, I freelance at Dads for Kids, um, an organization that helps to in, in inspire fatherhood and fathering uh, and, and encourage mothers along the, the journey as well, um, just to help them get to be uh, dads in a world that hates the John Wayne stereotype, that hates the, the, the John Wayne kind of man, you know, and to help them, uh, help the dads raise their father, their sons, sorry, uh, to be fathers in that, that, that respect, um, to encourage them to, to be the best they can be. Yeah. Now, if you don't mind, um, you mentioned that you were saved in a gutter, literally, and that tweaked my interest because I don't believe I've heard your testimony. I'm not sure if that's something you're comfortable with sharing, but um, I would love to sort of hear how it came about in a gutter and what happened. Well, I, I've been dragged to church. I've been Catholic, educated, um, Anglican. I've been like right across the board pretty much. And, you know, at, at the Christian school I attended after the Catholic school, I, I hated Christians. I, I, well, more, more so the hypocrisy and what I would probably call a bourgeois kind of complacency, this middle class um, where Christians because it keeps us wealthy kind of mentality. Um, God will protect us. God will take care of everything. And there's, there's this absence of, of suffering. And none of that related to my pain, none of that related to the brokenness in my life at the time. Uh, and even, even with that, I was kind of, the churches that we were dragged to or attending, I had too much baggage almost for them to even be able to care for or to even work me through those issues and to disciple me in that respect. And so there was a lack of that. And I got into drugs and, you know, self-medication, alcohol uh, abuse. This was as a teenager. I started drinking when I was 14 and sort of went into, you know, marijuana from, from there and, Saw, saw the seedy, seedy side um, of lots of things and uh, made some really poor choices, promiscuity, um, those kinds of things. And it wasn't until 96 when I was met with, uh, met up with a couple of guys from New Zealand who were over here talking about God in a way that I'd never heard talk before. These guys were, were genuine, they were passionate 
I mean, this, this was theology of the cross stuff, not, not the theology of glory. It wasn't a comfort as much as it was like an epiphany, sort of an awakening. Uh, I know it's going to probably make a lot of my reformed brothers and sisters cringe, but Kenneth Copeland was one of the, I was listening to, to his, um, one of his sermons one day on TV early, early in the morning. And um, it, it was talking about faith. And then I got a tape on faith and I started listening to that and, I just, I gave God two weeks, you know, just to, to dig into him. I, I just cut everything else off, put everything else out, uh, nothing from the world at all, just God and the Bible. And um, just sort of went from there. And we at one time, uh, the real catalyst was uh, one time of a, after a nightclub and, uh, you know, a binge, I um, was sitting in a gutter and well, sort of, you know, I'd sobered up by that time, but it was now nighttime. I uh, sorry, morning, and um, I just sort of sort of felt this kind of still small voice say, "You know, right, put these hands down to me." The only way I can describe it is illustrated like this. I saw these hands come down and and say, "If you give me your broken heart, I'll put it back together. There will be scars, but I'll never break it." And that's sort of what. I guess was sort of the the main turning point for me, and it's been an uphill battle since. I mean, it's it, it's a weird way of describing. It. I know that it, it's it's kind of um, an anomaly to some degree, but that's that's how I experienced it, and that's how how I viewed it. And um, yeah, we sort of moved from there and attended started attending the with these guys from New Zealand started attending church, and we started a radio program, um, the local Christian radio station, and um, the youth program, and yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Kenneth Copeland M. You're right, a lot of reformed people, including myself, was like, eh, when you said that. But um, I will say this, is that God saves, not man. And God yep. can use whoever and whomever he wishes to to do that. And it's interesting, I, I sort of had more of a Baptist sort of upbringing, not a reformed upbringing. And um, when I was in my teenage years in high school, I went to a youth group that was very uh, Pentecostally, very Australian Assembly of God type denomination, which is very different to what I am now. But it's interesting, I look back and even though I would never probably listen to a lot of the theologians I did back then or really get much, I always have to remind myself that, you know, God saves and not man. It's not yeah. by the will of man. I, I, and I've never, never subscribed to Copeland's theology mm. at all or even followed him. It was just that one particular yeah. teaching uh, tape that I had that, um, that just mm. moved me forward, you know, and I was just yeah. in, into the idea of what faith was and defining what faith is. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but he yeah, uses all different ways, you know, and there are things that he keeps secret and things that he reveals to us and the things that he keeps secret, we just, you yeah. know, like why he does things the way that he does um, and we just have to have faith in that. And, um, you know, I'm I'm grateful to hear that uh, you have been regenerated and he has fixed your broken heart and he's never let you go um, because, it, you know, once you're a child of God, you're always a child of God and, and he keeps you and he sustains you um, and he's there with you every step of the way. Um, so I'm grateful to hear that that's what he's done for you and, and testament to like who you are as a person now because, um, as you mentioned, you have a beautiful wife, you have five amazing children, all of whom love the Lord. Um, and you know, you, I, I, I take my hat off to where you've come from then to where you are now. And I think it's so important to, um, to celebrate just like the work of God in people's lives and their hearts. And, um, you know, like you obviously use a lot of this to, I guess, right. And to use your experiences to kind of rationalize your decision-making and your position on things and your opinion on things. And so it's really nice to see. So I just thought I'd encourage you with that. Well, it's, it, I mean, I don't then credit anyone for my salvation other than Christ mm. and, and it's him moving through the vocations of other people that um, 
brings that that word to life you know that, yes. that living water that fountain of living water and i see um i see a lot of that around us that goes unnoticed and, and uncredited it's um yeah but yeah i i did i said that the transform the 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 power of the cross, the transforming power of the cross is something that I'm constantly coming back to every single day and, you know, humbled by it. Mm. I mean, homeschooling is a, is a, a vocation that um, I think is, is misunderstood, but I think at the same time um, we need to get back to this idea of um, education being in, in the home first and, um well, that's not, something but, I yeah. really wanted to talk to you about, actually. Like, it's probably a good segue because you are a um, homeschooling father and yourself and your wife have both done this and made this decision together for your five children. And um, homeschooling in Australia isn't the same as what it is maybe in America or, you know, other sort of countries. Um, it's I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's relatively new, but it's not very heard of and it's not often done in Australia. But as I said, you've done it for a very long time. I'd love to hear one, um, your reasoning for homeschool um, and two, um, sort of what got you started in this journey to begin with? Well, at the start, I was against homeschooling. It took me three years to really come around. And that was prayer and consideration, a lot of talking with, um, with my wife about it. And in the end, uh, I was prompted by um, a situation that sort of, I guess, God opened my eyes to it. And my, one of my youngest, my second youngest daughter, she was at, at school and they made her run a race by herself because she was in a composite class for some bizarre reason. Uh, and I thought that's just ridiculous. Why is she running a race by herself? I mean, can't she just run with other people, even similar age group? She's in a class with those same people. And then she went to sit down next to, a couple of girls from her class on one of the embankments and they got up and walked away from her. And then the, the real trigger point was when, for me to see how I think not useless, but I, I think how, how the system needs some kind of reforming um, the way we convey about educate our kids through this, um, you know, this, this structure that's been around since the industrialized industrial revolution and she she um back to my daughter I mean, she she sat down at the desk and she wrote on a piece of paper will someone please play with me today stuck it on her desk the teacher thought it was cute right but i was horrified by it i was mm. like wow you know so we, we slowly started to see the spark in her die and mm. i kind of went oh, hang on there's something right here so it, it kind of informed that informed our choices big time and thought okay look this is this is not doing anything for her. And then we started homeschooling and moving that risky. It was scary. It was, you know, all those things. We had opposition. There was family members or family members who, who didn't really want us to do it. Um, and there's the sparks started coming back in her. I mean, we see that, you know, even now, I mean, it's full of joy and there's, there's a, a lot, a lot of, um, just like her character is, is where I think God would want it to be right now, you know? Mm. And that was through nurturing her and, and taking uh, taking the the road less traveled, I suppose. I mean, that making the sacrifice, fighting for her, and um, instead of putting her in a system that seems to fight against families and making strangers of of um, parents and their children. I mean, we see that parental rights bill in Florida that's trying to fight back against that, which is a good thing. So, I mean, this, the schooling system. I'm not condemning it at all, but I think that there's a um, there's a need for deep reflection um, in regards to a parent's or even the, even the society's attitude towards education. I mean, education begins in the home. And I think that uh, this, this notion that somehow I can't do what the government can or worse, I can't do what the government should be doing has um, got to go. You know, this, our, our country and the people in it, I think, tend to be, and I'm speaking from, you know, obviously where I come from, welfare dependent family. I've seen the, the the welfare cycle. I've seen the mentality that goes with it. I've seen the, the entitlement. I've seen the, the the generational cycle of poverty that comes along with the welfare uh, dependency the paradigm. And I think that 
if if we can sort of shine a light on on that, people might sort of understand that there's a real liberation in home education, and um, that doesn't mean that we stop socialization altogether, which is that big, you know, uh, phobia that a lot of people have about homeschooling. But it, it breaks with the government dependency that's out there. That the mentality of I can't do this unless X and X does it for me. Um, yeah, okay, there, there, is, there are exceptions to that rule, fair enough. And I certainly wouldn't want to have been homeschooled in the environment I was, which is why it took me so long to come around um, in many respects because the, the schooling that I had was really the only stable environment for me uh, outside the home. There was no other stable environment. So it was an important part of, of keeping me level and, and, and uh, I guess, on the straight and narrow. Uh, and it helping me inform my choices as a teenager, which I still made horrible ones. Um, but because it was a Christian school, there were there were teachers there who uh, I, I would say they were more concerned with pastoral care than they were about uh, whether or not they were uh, getting their teacher their kids past the the X Y Z, you know, through that tick tick on next level. Here you go, you know that. Um, I've done my job, now it's somebody else's. Here's the paperwork to show it. There's a, a real care for the, the soul of that child and in that process. So the, the, I think the Christian schools, faith-based schools, really have that. Um, um, I think that's missing in some part from public schooling. And you see that now with the way that the kids are indoctrinated with our climate change and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's a sort of about reason as much as it is about... Uh, you know, the, the ideological um, push to, to get kids to agree and conform to this particular mindset, you know, this, this hive-mindedness that's causing that, as what that something has been termed a, the, a mind virus, this, this rejection of truth and, and reason for subjectivity and emotive arguments that, as you see with virtual signaling, has no real goal but to, um, convince people to go a certain direction without questioning that direction, you know. So, I mean, that's one of the part, uh, one of the things I think with, with homeschooling kids is that um, every morning we start with what I call God, life, and the world around us, and we cover ancient history, theology, uh, some politics, modern history, and uh, pop culture. You know, it's a real way to contextualize what's going on in the world, and uh, we'll sort of we do once a week we do. Uh, news of the week which is a great way to get kids involved in what's going on in the world in print rather than what's on the tv because i have a real disdain for television news in three minutes or maybe even not even that plus an ad in the middle of it or maybe two or three you get this kind of cut and paste image of what's going on whereas a written article is going to give you a little bit more detail because it, it and i know from experience it, it takes a bit to get those articles factual and, and to, to back them and to research them. And so it takes a lot more effort to write an article than it does to um, cut and paste and, you know, present a particular narrative. I mean, it's easier to do, I think, and, and control people with images and uh, a soundbite rather than giving them some information and go, okay, read that, analyse it, let's talk about it, which is what we do once a week with um, the Australian hard copy. Uh, sometimes it'll be Reuters or uh, maybe even Collagen Pool, I think, you know. But we do. We get the Collagen Pool podcast up from now and, uh, now and then as well and play that in the background. So there's all this stuff that's informing the process of, of our homeschooling that sort of fights back against that hive-mindedness. And um, the kids, I think, have a broad understanding uh, of the world around them. There's no fear the way I was raised. Um, there's no fear of climate change. There's no fear of... Um, you know, the, even COVID, I mean, we, we made a very determined effort to fight back against the hysterics. And we said, okay, we'll, we'll just be balanced with reason, we'll listen, we'll pay attention, and then we'll make decisions based on the information, not on the feelings or the, the hype that goes with that. And uh, I think that's that's part of nurturing children in, in the direction they should go. And I just don't know if they're getting that at, in the schooling system, which seems to me to be hyping up a lot of this, um, the, the supposed problems such as climate change, for example, which is highly questionable. I mean, it's not not settled science. You've got Judith Curry, you've got Peter Reid. I mean, these are all 
guys with doctorates who were being silenced because of it. Ian Plummer is another one. He's an Aussie guy. I mean, it, if, if they're not listened to, if they're cancelled, and their voice is not allowed. I mean, what's the system really teaching these kids? It's not a balanced, holistic education they're receiving. It's indoctrination. And that's, um, for me, that's, I think that's a problem. I think for Australian society as a whole, I think we should stop and go, hey, we're on the wrong track here, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because um, I've often said, and I, I've seen it myself with, um, you know, education even when I was at school um, and then you see sort of like it, how it's been evolving and it's almost gone from teaching children how to think and I guess how mm. to come to logical conclusions, rational conclusions, conclusions using logic and reason to formulate um, conclusions, things like that. It's gone from, yeah, teaching kids how to think to teaching children what to think. And it's almost yeah. telling the ad, the sort of um, mentality isn't uh, here's all of the information without censorship, without bias, without subjectivism. Here's all of this. It's literally you can read this and this is what you need to think. And I think that is definitely where a lot of reformation needs to occur because you do see a lot of children, um, you know, leave school and not really being able to enter the workforce or anything else with this ability to um, formulate and, I guess, practice decision-making skills. Um so I think there's definitely needs to be a lot of reformation. I don't think we should be telling people what to think. I think we need to tell people how to, um, yeah, come to rational yeah, conclusions. Yeah, I, I think logic is, a, is mm. we've lost logic, civics, and theology. There's three things that have been booted out of the education curriculum. Three, the basics, basic, the basics of all, you know, intellectual thinking, I think, in the West, academic thinking. And now it's all, um, you know, uh, emotion-based sort of stuff. I mean, you, mm. uh, woke uh, theology, you've got woke um, politics, which is saying we you've got to first acknowledge the, the ancestral owners of the land and we've got to focus on that rather than A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I mean, okay, well, yeah, look, you know, the Aboriginal people, Indigenous Australians, they have a place. They have a place in our history and we need to recognise that. But do we need to genuflect to it? Really, do we need to get our kids so um, uh, focused so much on that that our kids, or that's all our kids know is how bad or, um, you know, how even even manufactured to some degree, how, how evil um, white people are. I mean, and it's not just about white people in general. It's, it's, it's more uh, that racist uh, underpinning of the, of the, of the whole movement of say, for example, Black Lives Matter, which, Again, is not logical. There's, there's fallacies that are thrown in there. We have to question those. And, and kids aren't taught how to identify things like a straw man or an ad hominem uh, or given that objective perspective for them. They're not being equipped properly. They're not being prepared. They're not being well armed with um, the right kind of information. And when I say right kind of information, I mean objective truth i mean the stuff that is well informed that is well argued um that that isn't divisive but speaks facts to you about a situation or an event that that took place but even even the, the sbs i'm not sure if you've ever seen the the documentary the first australians and the sbs put out it, we sat down and did that for our uh, indigenous curriculum stuff and i was blown away Pasco was on there and there was a few others and, you know, you could really see the bias coming out. You really identify it. And the kids were able to identify that. But even SBS had to acknowledge that the relationship between the white settlers and the Indigenous Australian communities, I'm reluctant to call them nations. Uh, it's more a Canadian thing. Uh, the First Peoples, I think, is more accurate. Um, was not as bad as the hype suggests or even, even claims. And so there's, there's, again, there's a form of misinformation and disinformation that's being taught to kids, and I think that's letting them in the wrong direction there. There has to be a reason for that, and the only reason I can think of is that there are certain elements behind this that want children to think a certain way because if they can get them to think a certain way, 
they can get them to vote a certain way. And that's that's the death of constitutional democracy in Australia. That's the death of freedom of speech. That's the death of freedom of religion. It's the death of, you name it, classical liberalism, Burkean classical liberalism. You know, we'll end up with Robespierre and um, Gallows. Mm. Mm. It's, it's that's that's the alternative. That's the flip side, and I think I think that's that's a dangerous a dangerous path that we're heading down. And I'm not sure homeschooling is the answer to that, but I think it's an overall review of how we look at education, what's being taught, and why it's being taught. And uh, I think that that's definitely necessary. But I think for parents who are concerned, I think yeah, homeschooling is definitely an option for them, and it's doable in Australia. I think New South Wales is probably the best state out of all of them um, to homeschool because they they function in a subsidiary uh, uh, capacity. Although my opinion is that overall, from a federal perspective, homeschooling is disincentivized through um, a lack of tax offsets, a lack of um, perhaps uh, acknowledgement that this is a genuine, authentic way to educate children and to bring them up. So it's, it's a, a reliable way to do it. Um, I like the fact that there's a little bit of regulation, but too much is is um, like we have, I think, in Queensland, I think, and, and Victoria, perhaps. Um, it's not not good. Yeah, so the government can go too far. You, you, partner, you partner with the government to get some kind of um, transparency there um, because I know that there are people within the Greens, for example, who consider homeschooling to be child abuse. Others would consider it to be overparenting. Uh, how is a parent loving their child into the world through nurture, um, balanced information? child abuse how is that overparenting? because you don't want your child to be a clone of everybody else or stuck in a room with peers until they're in year 12 and then suddenly if they don't pass the the, the standard of you know the, the the hse standard and they're under all this stress their friends go off to, to university and they didn't pass their world's ended all their friends are gone because everything is packed into this bubble and they're taught to live in that bubble up until year 12, how is that socialisation? Mm. My kids have interacted with people from 84 right down to zero, right? I mean, they've got a really broad experience with dealing with different people and, and a different, I give in different cultures. Um, I, just, I, I struggle with the, the, the defence for the current system and... Uh, I understand that we no longer have a society where one parent can stay at home and still own a house. But is that part of this anti-family movement? Is that part of this anti-family agenda perhaps, right? Um, Where we have this situation, I suppose, where now there is a... um, a houseless board, you can't have kids until you're 40. Even then, you're still going to work your job like a slave and put your kids in school. That's the best way to go. Daycare, for example. Look at daycare and the daycares around around Australia. I mean, they're f- largely funded by the government. And why? Because you get women in the back, back in the workforce. That gives them brownie points with the feminists. But how does that help the kids? You know, mm-hmm. if you've got a, a six-month-old who's going to be sit- sitting with strangers how does that help how, how is that nurturing a child into the world i mean and i know I'm not, I'm not condemning mothers or parents with this or mums and dads i'm just saying that i think that we're being sold something that's not healthy and i think down the track we're going to pay for it as a society i think we're already out of some respect in some respects you're already up starting yeah. to pay for it now i mean you look out the windows of your home and you can sort of see the state of the world. I think we are sort of, um, I guess, experiencing the consequences of our persistent and ongoing um, dabbling in things that aren't healthy for us and things that are not good for us, particularly the family. Parental abdication of responsibility, handing that over to the government as if the government was a parent of the child. We have no future as a society if we continue down that road. You look at, as I mentioned earlier, we wrote an article this week um, talking about 
the engagement of dads in schools. It's a great initiative in Chicago. One of the highest, I think, one of the highest um, in the United States for murders by uh, by, uh, by a long shot. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And these guys have started this Mr. Dad's Father's Club, and that's all back to basic stuff. They're just going to schools and read books to kids, and they connect with their own children. And they're they're all involved in that. That's it's a great startup. That in some respects is homeschooling. You know, it, it's engaging kids, fathers and, and mothers engaging back in with their kids' education. Um, just one reason why I've been so passionate about the, the parental bills coming through the U.S. and protecting a parent's involvement in the education of their children. Because I'm, you know, homeschool and I'm, I'm pro, you know, home education, I, I think it's just because it's the, the family unit has to survive or none of us survives. You know, mm-hmm. um, like what is it said? Uh, Uvalde, I think say pronounce it, Uvalde in Texas, that big shooting there. I mean, he was fatherless. He came from a fatherless home. And according to some stats from Dads for Kids, 26 out of 27 of the biggest shootings in the U.S. are all absentee fathers. They all all had no father at home. There's there's a real connection here, I think, between um, absentee dads, absentee parents, and the state of society and where it's heading. Other than just the the sin of the human heart and and things like that, I think it's all sort of related. But... um, there's, there is this mental health situation that everyone, I think a lot of people just seem to be burying, in the United States in particular. I think Ben's article on that was excellent. Um, people should go and read that. That was brilliant, what he said. That it's a hard issue, not a gun issue. And um, I couldn't agree more with what, he, what he'd written. I I just wanted to read something to you. Um, So the department, the US Department of Justice have released some statistic about fatherless homes. So when you mentioned that you wanted to sort of talk about fatherlessness, I took this straight from their website and I'm just going to read you some of these statistics because it is quite shocking. It actually breaks my heart. Um, So I'll go here. 63% of youth suicides come from fatherless homes. 90% of all homelessness and runaway youths come from fatherless homes. 85% of all children that exhibit behavioural disorders come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions like juvenile detention and things like that come from fatherless homes. 75% of adolescent patients in substance abuse centres all came from fatherless homes. 75% of rapists motivated by displaced anger come from fatherless homes. So (laughs) that's truly appalling when you hear those statistics out loud. Um, I think that the family unit has been something that has been attacked for a really long time. You break the family, you break the nation. It's that simple. And um, who's the head of the family? The father. And I think that for a really long time, men have been ostracized. Masculinity has been deemed toxic. Um, But really, it's the absence of masculinity in a man that makes that man toxic because masculinity by its true nature is to protect and is to provide Genesis 2.15. And I think that men have been um, unfairly, taken away from their children by really bad family law court systems as well. And I think that our systems are too, just like our education system, like what we said, it's too one shoe fits all. Like you said, the conveyor belt and everybody just goes through it and nothing is done on an individualistic basis enough. And that includes Mm -hmm. whether a mother should have access to her children. And that includes whether a father should have access to his 
it's not weighed independently enough and the circumstances are not weighed independently. And unfortunately, fathers have been the ones historically that have lost access to their children. It's almost just this weird thing that, well, the mother gets the kids. That's just how it's always been. And um, I think we're seeing and we're reaping the consequences of fatherless homes in our culture. Those statistics that I mentioned are shocking. I didn't realise about the mass shootings in America that 26 out of 27 came from fatherless homes. And these are all things that are not necessarily the answer for everything, but it's certainly something that we should be talking about and that we should be having the conversation about, but we're not allowed to. (laughs) Like, you know, it's just one of those subjects that if you speak about masculinity not being toxic, oh, you must hate women. You must not believe women. And it's just not the case at all. Um, And it's really sad because our children will continue to suffer um, in many ways if we don't at least have a conversation and address the elephant in the room. And this is something you talk a lot about, fatherlessness. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think the answer is, how you think we combat all of these things and what we can kind of do to sort of help moving forward. As I mentioned, I think that the initiative in Chicago by um, Joseph Mm. Williams is excellent. I mean, it's back to basics and it does operate on that homeschool kind of mentality that the education of a child is the responsibility of the parents, not the government, not a teacher, although teachers play can play an important role, uh, mentors, um, you know, things like that. Um, there's another one too in, in Louisiana. A bunch of dads got together. They fed up with violence in the schools. So they got together and created Dads on Patrol, Dads on Duty, I should say, sorry, so DOD. And they go to the schools. I mean, these guys are big dudes, you know, much bigger than I am. And they rock up and they get the dads on duty thing. I mean, kids love them. Kids are coming up, talk to them. Um, and it keeps, it's, it's one way of policing, I think, but also one way of getting dads and men back involved in um, the family unit and taking more concern and care and concern for their child's welfare and well-being. I mean, I mean, from my experience, like I was pretty much left to uh, my own devices from 13 and had to function as an adult, make adult decisions from that age. And um, while that, you know, my mother has regrets about that, um, I don't think my father ever did. And um, that, I think, comes from his own own sort of dysfunctional background, but also that that, that me, myself, and I, a culture, that this self-centeredness, this idea of it's my freedom and my kids don't deserve to be part of that or I'm scared of losing that freedom. It's real selfishness, I think. And I think the boomer generation, I've been critical of the boomers before and and they've kind of, you know, jumped on my back and nagged at me. But I, I think you see COVID, you saw COVID and how boomers were in that time. It's protect me, protect me. We need to sacrifice the young in order for, the, the, for us to survive. And uh, I think... Again, a sort of ref- reflection of what we're talking about. The, the boomer generation tends, for me, tend to, I think, have made a lot of mistakes. I think they tend to to see themselves as some kind of God's gift to humanity. I mean, they're one of the, the, the generation that didn't have to go to war, didn't have to defend their freedoms. And, and yet under that generation, because a lot of them are still in power, we're losing freedoms and we're losing others. So there's, I think there's a connection to their complacency and selfishness. And now not all of them are that way. And I'm not, you know, boomers. I'm not saying everyone's that way. Don't don't start pointing fingers at me and attacking me like you know I have been when it came to COVID. Uh, I acknowledge that there are a lot of great great boomers out there, and you know you deserve credit absolutely. But I think as a whole, there's the, the criticism, and there are, there's a lot of criticism both left and right uh, against the generation itself. Uh, it deserves some kind of conversation like we're talking about fatherlessness i mean they are the generation that that that, that were most responsible i think for that um and there needs to be some kind of and i'm not saying we should go oh we're we're all victims we should blame the boomers i'm not saying that i think that if we're looking from a sociological point of view at this um and and trying to apply a theological answer as well we need to have all the cards on the table and we need to be completely honest about where things are and how things got there. And, 
especially with that, that the generations that are um, now coming through who are confused about gender, who are confused about um, climate change, who, who, who even some of them don't even, don't even really want to involve themselves involved in politics because don't talk to me about politics or religion. Again, because we've booted civics, theology, um, and logic from the, the curriculum. It's all now, um, you know, feelings and, and um, all sort of based on the subjective and, um, again, detrimental. So if we can correct that, if we can come back to bringing these things back into, into play, I think that we'll go a long way to fixing uh, some of the problems or even halting a lot of the, the regression we're seeing in the name of progress. And there's no way around it. I mean, I've been teaching with the kids Greek for a while, and I mean, I'm not an expert at it, but it's fun to look at just as a, a fun extracurricular activity. And you, you can have a lot of fun with um, the Greek and Latin, Latin uh, language. And we, we just recently brought into that first form Latin. And it's, it's just a fun, fun little extracurricular. And the kids love it. They're really into it. I mean, if it's done right, it's not boring. It's not, not, not a grind. Um, but it, it gives, I think it, it reminds me of how much we've lost, I think, in the education system through booting out things like Greek, things like Latin, things, things I think that were are foundational to Western civilization. And it I just it comes back to, to that, um, the, an attack on Western civilization from within institutions, um, from what David Horowitz has constantly, constantly talked about. I'm not sure if you're familiar with David, but he was an American ex-communist. He was part of the, the anti-war movement in the, the 1960s, uh, but turned around after the Black Panthers killed one of his friends and then got away with it. And so he talks a lot about that, but he's, he talks about how the, the left has overtaken the institutions and explains how through nepotism um, and through a, a lack of um, criticism, postmodern culture, things like that. Um, complacency from conservatives, I guess, will play a role in that too. So, you know, I guess if people in our realm aren't innocent in, in that regard, we've been asleep at the helm for too long, I think. And then we're just starting to wake up. I think apathy is the silent killer and maybe not so yeah. silent these days. And I think that um, there are certainly almost like generational cultural shifts. And I think the the boomer generation, as you mentioned, were very apathetic. They didn't really have those hard times that, that kind of formed strong character like previous generations and forefathers. You know, iron uh, sharpens iron and I'm not sure that they ever really went through those processes because of um, the position of the world at the time that they were sort of raised and brought up. And, yeah, I think that we really do need to, like you said, put all the cards out and go, where where have we gone wrong? Why are we here? Because we can be in a sinking boat and we can get a bucket and we can keep you know, lugging the water off out the side, but unless we find the leak to plug the leak, we're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And it's going to be yeah. futile. And eventually we're going to get tired. And then eventually we're going to give up. And then eventually the boat's going to sink. So we've got to really assess where the leaks are coming from yeah. and figure out how to plug them for a long-term sort of solution. And I think that's certainly where we're at. And it's interesting. I, I sort of want to finish off today talking a little bit about Australian politics and where we are now because um, the last few years or a couple of years, a lot of us have been trying to plug these leaks and we're trying to sort of say, you know, if we don't plug these leaks, Australian politics are going to go pretty, pretty bad. Um, and, you know, uh, the latest election, I think, probably went as uh, not so great in terms of people uh, like us who are more conservative in politics. But I wanted to get your thoughts on the election. I wanted to get, um, I guess, your opinion on where we go from here, what went wrong, um, and if there's any sort of hope to turn it around. Well, I'm kind of hoping that Albanese doesn't become another Joe Biden but, you know, so far there hasn't been a lot of signals in that direction. But, um, you know, I think Morrison deserved to lose the election uh, as much as I'm like, hey, you know, my side might have lost this one. But the way the way that he, my, my sort of, the only way I can describe him in his three years as Prime Minister was middle management. And 
I know people say oh, he's marketing Scotty from marketing, but I don't think that's quite accurate. I think he just he took the middle manager road because you know, I come from middle management myself, so there's a bit of background there. I think he just was a facilitator rather than a leader, mm-hmm. and that that caused a lot of problems. I think in particular um, with his national cabinet decision was one of the worst things I think he ever did, and that led to him basically being um, the, to use, I don't know if it's the right one, it probably, I would say a daycare, a daycare leader of um, premiers, you know, he, it, this is just like, um, he, he kind of abandoned his office or abdicated his office and gave the premiers an ersatz prime ministership in each of the states. And they acted with that. They went, they ran with the power, especially labor premiers. They ran with that and did some horrendous stuff. And I just, I kind of, in some respects, I can't understand why we voted the Labor government in. But in other respects, I understand why we did, why that happened because it wasn't a vote against, um, sorry, it wasn't a vote for Albanese. It was a vote against Morrison. It was an indictment on his leadership. Like I wrote in, in January that they should have put Dutton in as leadership. I mean, bad people go, oh, no, we don't need Dutton. We need um, Hasty. Well, that's a good choice, but you know, Dutton's sort of first in line, I guess. And we would have, I don't know if we would have been a different outcome or not, but Morrison had to go. He he would already he'd already become stale, he'd become his leadership, his leadership was already uh in, in tatters because of the fact that he abandoned his office to these premiers. And they they smashed the Australian people. Like, okay, well, lockdowns, people are saying, Oh, we needed those lockdowns. Did we need them as hard as we had them? I don't know. I don't think we did. I think we've been saying that for, for two years now. Does Is totalitarianism really necessary to fight COVID? And in, in the conclusion was, well, COVID needed a scalpel. The government used an axe or a bat. And instead of fighting the virus, they turned it on the war on the virus and the people. There's lots of evidence to, to, to back that up. So it doesn't matter, I think, in respects to the LNP losing, because we already had a Labor government in some respects, over the last two years, nothing much has changed, in my opinion. Um, now, I could be wrong about that. We might end up with some significant issues. I mean, there's certainly a lot, lot further left than the LNP Labor Light are, was most of it booted. But I think the Liberal Nationals need to come back to God, first and foremost, the Menzies uh, mantras. Um, to get back to their roots and in, uh, in that respect, get back to the people and serving the people instead of the interests of the party. And I know that the Mark Powell did a great, uh, a great few articles on why the, the, why Morrison lost and uh, why Morrison deserves, you know, what his legacy is going to be and things like that. I really thought that he did well handling that um, particularly the, the points about him not necessarily being a statesman throughout the last two years and or two and a half really it's still ongoing in western australia which is pathetic but anyway um yeah i'm 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 not devastated by it to be honest and i don't know quite how to explain other than there's a piece about it i think that there a lot of people are going to be uh surprised by what we see i I thought the if people voted for the Albanese government because they thought they were going to get a, their first home, I think that's a that was a, that was a poor choice. Um, but I yeah, that, I mean that's pretty slim. There's only ten thousand places for that forty percent ownership, so and, and it's restricted. It's not like for everybody. Um, I thought Morrison's idea of giving us access to our super to do that was a far far smarter option, but. Um, you know, I mean, I do, and I guess if you raise arguments, so that's why people voted for for Albanese or the Labor government. I don't think so. I mean, even climate change, I don't think that was the biggest driving force between Labor and the left because they didn't get the biggest. They, I mean, they got what their lowest, one of the lowest votes in history. So, I mean, okay, well, what about the Teals? Well, they're well funded, those guys, and they're well backed. And there was a it was a propaganda campaign that was um you know smashed out there plus you have this uh again you had most of those replacing labor light liberals so um you know there's something you can't just say that well okay there was climate change was the sole reason why 
this guy's lost. And even even with that, uh, you see the attacks on Elon Musk. I know this is America, but I think it's connected with the, the arguments about why Labor got in. Elon Musk is his biggest heresy is that he's preaching capitalist solutions when he should be preaching, according to the left, Das Kapital, right? For the left, the only solution is socialism, and that's the solution to all sorts of oppression and all sorts of problems, especially economics. But Elon Musk and others like him are looking to the free market to solve these supposed problems um, with the climate or that, that are going to be caused by the climate. So here's off script. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not Labor does the same thing. They're already having issues with that because they the Greens are going, I'm not sure the headlines was yesterday saying the Greens are all up in arms because Labor won't rule out fossil fuels or using fossil fuels to avert an energy crisis. Um, so whether Labor can get their head in the game and say, well, we're going to actually employ the free market rather than go in the direction of government overreach and, and bigger government to solve this, uh, I don't know, it remains to be seen. I, I suspect they're going to probably increase government, not reduce it. That's just the Labor way. Um, but it, it gives the LNP a, a great platform for three in three years' time if they can utilise the forces of the free market to solve these so-called problems with the climate or that are being caused by the climate um, to bring about a resolution or a solution or an answer. And instead of socialism or Marxism being the, the one, the one way that we have to go in order to fix uh, global extinction or to prevent global extinction. So I think it's a strong point. And I think if we were to focus on that as an issue for the Labor getting or reason for Labor getting voted in, um, I don't think is a, a strong enough argument to say that that was the sole reason. Like I said, I think it was a vote against Morrison, not a vote for Albanese. I think the facts show that. Yeah, I. it's interesting. I feel exactly the same as you. I feel at peace about the election. Um, I think that I... I sort of thought that this is exactly where it was going to go. I said it will be, I, I said it will be a uh, a Labor government with a lot of greenies, and which was the teal. Vote. I was wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong about that. I, I actually thought we were going to get a, a a hung parliament or at least a minority Liberal national government. Okay. I think it was well, wishful thinking, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I honestly was of the belief that it would be a Labor government. So I'm very much at peace with the election. I'm very much, I feel at peace um, moving forward because, to be honest, um, Liberal Party and the Labor Party, they're, they're birds of the same feather. You know, they they really are. They're just at different and varying degrees, but we were all, all on the same trajectory, whether it was the Liberal Party. If yeah. they had have stayed how they stayed and they weren't like, because let's face it, the modern Liberal Party is not really the Liberal Party. So if, if the modern Liberal Party stayed the way they were, it was just Labor. So it doesn't really make a difference. The thing that surprised me were the independents. I thought that some of the independent parties would have had more of an influence um, than they did. But to be honest, um, uh, I wasn't somebody that really pushed or was interested in those minor independent parties over like sure like I thought they were they were good and they were great but I didn't believe uh that um they like they would ever take you know prime minister position I think that we're not even close in Australia to be able to get there but I did think that they would possibly take more seats than they did so that surprised me did that surprise you as well I think the teal the teal thing more raises questions for me than it does. It surprised me. But I, one more I was surprised about was Dee's losing in um, um, to the the independent. I, I thought that her outspokenness against transgenderism was um, an excellent platform, and I think that it was necessary. Again, if we're looking at truth versus falsehood, which is um, the, the driving force behind you know what I I do at Culture Pool and what, what we do. Um, I think if that her platform was excellent, and I was surprised that she didn't didn't actually replace um, the independent that was there. Maybe 
there's deeper reasons for that within the community. I don't know, but that was the only real surprise for me that um, Simon Holmes are caught. I think he's the, the billionaire. I think he's behind the Teal Party. And it's, I think they're not independents. You'd have to call them an actual block. They're a, they're a voting block. So they're a, you, you'd have to call them a Teal Party, not independents, because they're not really independent. They are, they're, they're aligned they're aligned behind somebody, a backer who's behind them. So I think anybody who who, who argues that they are independent, I think is, is stretching the truth perhaps. But um, I mean, my biggest shock probably was that the Labor light guys lost a lot of them. And um, that's encouraging though, you know? Uh, so yeah, that's probably the only thing that I was shocked by or surprised by. Yeah. It, honestly, I'm, I'm, glad that Scott Morrison wasn't voted for because he deserves to lose. Um, He spent his entire time as Prime Minister alienating people who would vote for him. His entire voter base he basically flipped the bird to for years and years and then he expected for us to vote for him come election. Like the man obviously uh, isn't very clear-minded about how you treat and people who were loyal to you and who gave you, you know, your vote. And so for me, like he, he literally was a fence sitter. And I like to say this, you know, Satan owns the fence. Mm. You got to pick yeah. a side. Yeah. The only thing you're going to achieve sitting on the fence is splinters in your butt. Like there's just nothing yeah. that you can achieve for it because you're alienating your voter base whilst simultaneously trying to please a group of people who are never going to likely vote for you in their life. It's stupid politics. It's dumb. Well, um, I think Australian people saw through it, right? I mean, he would say yeah. there is there are no there are no mandates, vaccine mandates in Australia, but hey, we're being forced, no jab, no job. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on, you're saying one thing, but the reality is very different. Mm. And I think that that sort of meant, okay, people are switching off, not listening to me anymore, mate. Yeah. You're inconsistent and you're obviously a tone deaf to what's actually going on. And mm. that that I think is part of what I was saying about him abdicating his office and giving mm. the prime ministership to premiers for near on two years. And they just did whatever they wanted with it. Yeah. I'm interested to see what the Liberal Party are going to do moving forward. Are they yeah, going yeah. to, how are they going to tackle this? Will they say, okay, we need to start actually finding out what our voter base wants? Do we want to actually win back votes of the people or are they going to become more left because they are going to assume that because they lost or more people want us to be like that? That's the big million dollar question I don't have the answer to. I have a horrible feeling that what they are going to do to try and counter this loss is they're going to become even more labor in their policy, even more greens in their way looking for sort of the future. I think that's where it's going to go. I hope it doesn't because if you look at the Liberal sort of party throughout history, the more conservative they have been, the more libertarian I guess they have been, the more they get votes. But they were, yeah. I, I have this sinking feeling they're not going to look at history. <laughs> they're well, I going think, to. I think you're right. I think you're right. They, they need to be a clear, provide a clear alternative and a clear difference. Like I said, with Elon Musk, for example, use him as a, as a, as a quintessential example here. He is utilising the free market, the, the power and forces of the free market, which is far greater, far better than the, any government collective can ever be or centralised power and achieving um, success in pulling people out of poverty or solving you know, emergencies, whatever they may be. Um, the Liberal National Party need to harness that and that same thing, instead of going in this, um, you know, quasi-communist direction, uh, which is where I think that a lot of globalists want us to go. And that's why I, I think that the Elon is, is hated to some degree. He's certainly not right or even in, in that direction. He's centre-left, right? So it's bizarre to see them attack him. And the only thing I can, I can put that back to is what I've just said. He's, he's preaching capitalism, not dust capital. And then if he's gone off script. And so if the LNP want to power forward, they need to go off script as well. And they need to say, okay, we're going to head in this direction. We see the signs. We're reading the signs of the time. And we can succeed if we, again, let's just get back to basics instead of 
feeding this woke topian idea of things, which is only going to end in a dystopia anyway. We know that. That's how all communist societies go. Um, yeah. So it, 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 you're right. It would be really interesting. And I like that. And I hope that he does something um, with the party. I mean, he did really well with the, the defense ministry. I know he's been criticized for his tenure as a health minister. Probably wasn't his forte, though. Um, but as leader, I think he's got an opportunity. He does have an image problem. Yes, that's true. Uh, but so did Tony Abbott. But he won, what, 2013? He won pretty big because he went, he got back again, back to basics. He took the room back to basics. Um, yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see. And I think for a lot of us who, for the last two years, have put God over government, it's going to be a, a we're going to have our work cut out for us in the next three years to help keep this government accountable through journalism, through um, alternate journalism, perhaps, um, even if we can in the, the mainstream media, um, uh, so we can counter the, the legacy media loving on the Albanese and Labor itself, uh, especially with the, the catastrophizing about climate change. And uh, their one-eyed approach, which is just like with the vaccines, you know, mass injections, uh, mass collective conformity. If you don't do it, you're going to be punished. Well, you know, there are other solutions to this climate, so-called climate crisis, uh, and there are other, uh, other opinions, opposing viewpoints. Let's look at them. Let's look at other options. And I think, again, come back to that point, if the LNP can do that and uh, overcome um, the, the, the stale way that they've been presented through the affableness of Morrison, I think they'll win through and um, provide themselves as a strong alternative to what we're being sold at the moment. Yeah, we, as you said, we have our work cut out for us. I'm not sure what that's going to look like practically, but yeah. all I know is as Christians, um, we have a responsibility to not just point and complain to things, but to yeah. live it out ourselves, to live um, the best lives that we can. And, you know, that's the best place for us to start. And I guess we figure out the rest <laughs> along the road as we go. But I'm really grateful that we could have this conversation today. I'd love to talk to you more, but we are coming on the hour. So before we finish off, where can people find you? Where can people read um, your written works, social media? Load us up with it. Okay, well, Cauldron Pool is the main one. So and that's uh, my passion. So I really like to write uh, the, the political theology stuff and to really make an impact if we can in that direction. And um, I guess help the team make CP world-class at what we do. Um, then as Dads for Kids, I freelance at Dads for Kids and I've been doing a little bit of um, freelancing for Campbell Decoration as well. But yeah, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, the general sort of stuff. That's why people can grab a hold of me. Awesome. Thanks for coming on today, Rod, and um, we'll uh, look forward to seeing your latest article. Thank you.